You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Corey Matthews. Corey is an activist and nonprofit executive with more than a decade of experience leading community-based programs in a variety of social policy arenas. A native of South Central Los Angeles, Corey grew up with two active and involved parents who made sure he was not only focused on academics, but also participating in a variety of extracurricular activities. When it was time to decide on a college, he decided to stay close to home and attend UCLA, where he majored in psychology. And despite the curriculum's focus on more neuroscience than his interest, counseling, he decided to stick with it. Corey not only completed the requirements for his bachelor's degree, but given his extensive coursework and research, he also successfully petitioned the university for a master's degree in urban education. Corey eventually moved to the East Coast with plans to continue his education at Columbia. But once in New York, his focus was not exactly on academics, and his career path was nonlinear at best. Corey would eventually make his way back to California for reasons I'll let him explain. It was there that he reunited with his college sweetheart and obtained a Master of Public Policy from UC Berkeley. Corey also matured into a man who was willing to put down roots both professionally and personally. Today, he is a husband and father of two and serves as the chief operating officer of Community Coalition, where he works to help transform the social and economic conditions in South LA that foster addiction, crime, violence, and poverty. So here's his story. Please enjoy. Corey, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just trying to get a little bit of reprieve on this Sunday afternoon. So happy to be doing this with you. Absolutely. So we were having a little chat before, and you're determined to be the first alpha to wrap the interview up within an hour. That's right. Concision is an art. All right. We're going to see. Listen, I'm not too confident. I, I, I've had quite a few of you on the show. I know how it goes. <laughs> and not that you all drag on without anything to say. You just have a lot to say. And it's, it's substantive as well. But we're going to see where this lands. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm up for the challenge. All right, let's get into it. Who is Corey Matthews? Ah, you know what? I have been toying around with that exact question all week, trying to figure out what would be the best way to just come out the gate and say who Corey Matthews is. And you know what I landed at? I landed at Corey Matthews is many things to many people. Um, you know, years ago, actually, second sophomore year of college, um, a good friend of mine made like this art exhibit of just, it was, my, it was my birthday, and he decided to do four different portraits of me uh, because he was breaking out his art, and he knew that I have a lot of people there because I always have a lot of people at everything that I'm doing. And he made four different caricatures. The first was Corey Matthews, the alpha. The second was Corey Matthews, the church boy. The third was Corey Matthews, the alpha man. And the fourth one was Corey Matthews, the, um, the party boy. Um, and I'm sorry, I said Alpha Man twice. It was the activist. That was the third one. Um, so the activist, the alpha, the church boy, and the party boy. And I feel like, you know, he had it kind of, he hit the nail on the head because for so many years, I have most, I've really vacillated between so many different personalities and identities just based on the different spaces that I was in. And I really do 
connect that to my childhood um, because I was busy in a ton of different programs, doing a lot of different things. And I had to feed all of those different identities for different purposes. So I'd say that I am anything to many people. Uh, but if I were to describe myself, um, I'd say that first and foremost, I'm a man of faith. And secondly, I am a man that is committed to family and to community and to justice and to ensuring that my people, Black people, have everything that they need to be successful and live um, really purposeful, thriving lives. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I know that knowing a bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and all of that, I know that often those of us who've grown up in one community and have navigated a number of spaces, we often serve as a bridge between multiple worlds, which really puts us in a position to be all thanks to all men, because you just wear so many hats. And, you know, people may call it different things, shape-shifting, code-switching, or what have you, uh, but just the various environments that we're in, uh, it requires that of us. So how old were you when you realized that, you know what, I, my life, there's an intersection between many different worlds? At what age did you realize that? I'd say eighth grade. Um, so 13 years old, I was the president of I was a clown dancer. I was at church every Sunday and every Friday night. And then after church, I would sometimes go to parties on Friday nights. And I was in a ton of different programs. And the top school that I went to was a magnet school on the west side of town. And what that means is that I was bus to school from South Central, about an hour each direction, there and back. And I went to a school that pulled people from all over the city of Los Angeles and some neighboring cities. And that school was very diverse, but it had a predominantly black and brown and Asian population um, and also a lot of white folks, but predominantly black and brown Asian. And it was something that I didn't realize until I got to college, but it had something called a two-school phenomenon where you had a regular school and then you had an AP and honors track. But it wasn't until about the eighth grade where I began to do the hopping from the regular to the AP and honors. Um, so to do that, I had to really realize that I had made friends in all of these different spaces, you know, people that don't normally talk to other. I'm in classes and leadership class with my Asian and my white friends. And then I'm hanging out lunch and nutrition with my black friends and then partying with them on the weekend. And then also doing study groups and study sessions and group projects with my white and Asian friends. We had the same classes together. And so I'd say eighth grade is where I realized that I just never fit snugly and comfortably into any box. Um, that I had to be uh, quite porous as I, as, I, as I navigated to various different spaces and, and develop a certain level of comfort in order to do that with authenticity. Um, so that is when I would say it really dawned on me. And then I would facilitate that intersectionality throughout, you know, the rest of my trajectory in high school and then, you know, college, et cetera. So I have to pause on the clown dancer thing for a minute. You, you got to give me some more detail on that. So in Los Angeles, South Central in, in particular, you probably heard of somebody called Tommy the Clown. Um, yeah. We had the clown dancing, which predates the crump dancing. But at that time, there were a lot of inner city urban youth who were partaking in something called clown dancing. Um, it was cultural. Um, you basically hired out a clown dancing group to come to parties, whether it's a block party or somebody's birthday party or a little kid's party, um, and they would perform. 
And so it was something that was quite popular amongst us. We had battle zones and all different, you know, battle against young groups. And I would say that, you know, hindsight being 2020, it was just another positive experience for young people to participate in that still allowed you to rep a particular organization or a group you're set, um, but do it in something that wasn't going to lead to, you know, death and destruction and something that was actually contributing to the community. Now, we did do a lot of that that party is a very, very, very big part of my identity just because that's where a lot of the battles took place at different parties. So you just imagine being 15 deep in some huge SUV. Normally it was a Yukon Denali or something like that. And literally hopping out of the party and then dancing and then coming back. And, I, and that was a big part of me because it was unexpected. You know, uh, you had Corey who had the 4.0 GPA uh, and was in church. And, you know, definitely checked all the boxes, you know, in terms of being an acceptable to the non-black. And then you had like this clown dancing Corey that knew how to crip walk and all these other things that was also connected to his family members that was, you know, uh, definitely urban and not college track, et cetera. And I was like, how does he fit those dualities? And even when I grew out of clown dancing, you know, we had uh, stepping was a big thing. We had boys step teams and girls step teams all across LA. All the big schools had them. They would throw step shows and parties. And so I was captain of the boys step team by the 12th grade, but I was also captain of the boys tennis team. So two different demographics and two very different um, realities. But once again, being in that duality. So that's why I said clown dancing sort of manifested what I had already believed to be me fitting these intersectionalities. So, you know, listening to you talk about your your background and, and school and stuff, I, I have a lot of commonality there of going to a different school uh, through eighth grade and then in high school being on the step team, but also doing theater and the news and AP and honors classes and all of that. And, you know, I hear people talk about that and they'll talk about it as if it was torture because They had their friends, like the homies who weren't in those classes, and they're trying to navigate those two worlds. And I never had that experience, right? I could have lunch with my friends, and they knew when that bell rang, like I was out. I was on my way to AP government. I wasn't coming home with an empty backpack. I had mad books. It was before, you know, these kids have Chromebooks and and iPads now. but And that was fine. I always got that respect from my friends that you're not on this path with me and that's okay. And we can socialize and fractionize when it comes to these things over here, but don't mess with me and my academics. And it sounds like you had a similar experience. Well, you know, it was a a source of pride, you know, and not just me feeling prideful, but actually people's pride in me. Um, I I would say that I sort of felt like a token in both worlds. I was a a young black boy from South Central with over a 4.0 GPA. Just wasn't I was sort of a unicorn, and actually the math got its glow into was unicorn. So interesting, I just made that connection. But, um, you know, the Black folks are very proud of me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and my white and Asian friends and teachers, et cetera, were also very proud of me because I was this anomaly. I didn't, like I said, I didn't fit anywhere snugly, but I did feel like I was comfortable enough to go between spaces. And so whenever there was something, I don't know, there was one of my friends who was trying to sell something. He's like, well, Corey, just do the math, do the math for me or something like that. Or, you know, if it was one of my white and Asian friends who were trying to figure out uh, how to have a conversation with somebody, it was like, they may shoot that off of me. And so I felt like I took comfort in knowing that I could talk to anybody across any space in any domain 
and feel like who I was and what I had to say was enough. And I mm-hmm. feel that that is a certain um, form of its own bilingualism. You know, it, 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 it's, it's my ability to shapeshift, as you mentioned earlier in this call, um, to fit whatever was the space at the time. So I took it as a gift and I still see it as a gift. I think that I, because of that, I'm a bridge builder. And actually I went through a, a period in college where I got all um, conscious. I think they say woke now, but conscious. And I began to you know, learn the language for injustice and oppression and racism and all these things. And I was like, I was poor, I was oppressed. I, I didn't, you know, I, I mean, I knew it at, at the time, but you didn't have the language for it. So you didn't really know it, know it, if that made sense. And so then I began to get very Afrocentric. I was, I was completely cut off from everyone else because I felt like liberation, we have to figure out how are we going to architect the future for Black people um, that is driven by Black people. And then that made me also begin to feel like something was missing. You know, that I didn't necessarily know how to um, really demonstrate or, 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 or manifest that identity in a world where I knew that most of the spaces that I were in, I was still the only Black person. And so that manifested in college. And, and I know that I'm moving here, but I'll say this quickly, just in college, even then, um, multiple identities, lots of intersectionality. I was, uh, you know, the president of our, our fraternity chapter president of the African Student Union at the same time, but then also a McNair scholar and a researcher. And so once again, that duality, I was in honor and, you know, a lot of Black people were not. And, you know, so it became this, well, Corey, how do you hold all of that at one time? It's like, what's one Corey Matthews? That's all I know is mm-hmm. to do all these things, you know, differently. Even my first job, like going back to high school, I didn't have a retail job. Um, my first job was teaching science at a, a Saturday Science Academy in Watts. Really? Mm-hmm. 16, 17 years old. Absolutely. So I was always different, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I learned with maturity down the line that that difference is to be embraced and not, um, you know, to be like saddened about or distressed about. So going back to you growing up in in South Central specifically, you know, those of us who are on the East Coast, grew up here in other parts of the country and only knew South Central from the movies that were hot in the 90s uh, and what we saw on television or read about or heard about in the movies, I'm sorry, in the music, we have our view of what that was like for someone like you. But is it, is, is the art an accurate representation of what you were experiencing living in that community. Interestingly enough, so it's changing rapidly now. Um, but at that time, I felt like the South Central of my dad's generation and my generation was not all that different. Um, mm-hmm. It very much was a predominantly Black area. In fact, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie Friday. That yeah. movie was shot in my neighborhood. So mm-hmm. that's very much what it felt like. It was all Black. Um, you know, a couple of brown folks at that time. And it was very community driven. I just remember a lot of block parties. I told you about the clown dance, a lot of parties all the time. Um, lots of fun things. You knew who was who, but then you also, just because it was so sunny, and this is before the whole climate change and global warming and all that, it was always hot. It never, I don't even really remember it raining like that. 
Um, every now and again, it will rain. It would feel like the whole city would just sort of slow down. But South Central was just its own area. I mean, you knew it. You knew where your friends stayed at. You know, you knew it by by avenue. And then also, it's bigger than I thought it was at that time because um, I didn't go past a certain, you know, avenue. And then the people who I met later down the line never came on my side because we still had the gangs to continue it. So people didn't move around like that unless they maybe have cousins or family members in some other place. And so it was, it was fun though. You know, I just remember it being a lot of fun. Um, lots of cool people. And then my parents um, were very fun people. They still are very fun people. So we had lots of parties at our house too. Um, and I just remember it being a good time so much so that now with it changing so much, it doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. So can you expound a bit on the changes that are happening now that you think are changing the climate of the neighborhood and the feel of the neighborhood? Demographically, the shifts are, are, are there. Um, because of that, some of the things that we had come to enjoy before are not there. Um, I keep going back to the community-based events and back to sports at the parks. And, you know, you had all the games at the different schools and you knew who went to this school or that school. And there's not even very many um, predominantly Black schools. I don't think there's any, I think there may be one or two predominantly Black high schools left in the area. Um, and it just feels different. It feels like there's been a lot of loss because so many people have gotten pushed out or, or you know, have decided to will, willingly leave themselves. Um, and that means that the fabric of the community, which is really just a bunch of connecting neighborhoods, just feels different, feels less cohesive and also feels a lot more, I don't know, individualized. Mm-hmm. At the time, you know, we didn't necessarily have a lot of the awareness, this is all pre-Obama. We didn't necessarily have, I didn't remember a lot of political politics type things. And we changed the name since I left and came back from South Central to South Los Angeles. And so it just feels a little bit, maybe mainstream now? Maybe mainstream mm-hmm. is the right word. Um, and there's still parts of it that obviously feel just like home, but for the most part, it does feel different. I'm like, what do kids even do now? But that could also be attributed to just a change in generation, technology, and the proliferation of that, and so many other different ways to communicate and be around with one another and relate to one another. So those could also be attributed to that. But um, I remember mini bikes. You know, we had a, I had a mini bike and go karts, and people would race, and people had dirt bikes. They really had a job, a dirt bike. And then you know, you rode your bike, and you had the um, the uh, the pegs where people could ride on the bike with you and you may run down to the store with somebody or something like that. And, you know, people always had their music blasting really, really, really loudly. And then you got, you know, you did the rites of passage thing when you first you got your car. And then because of the laws, they don't let you drive anybody in the car with you for the first six months or a year. I can't remember it, but um, you did it anyway. And that was sort of its own thrill. And so, you know, it just, I don't know, maybe I'm getting older. It just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, I mean, I think in many neighborhoods, uh, particularly metropolitan areas across the country, technology has changed things. I remember like the first time I saw a group of kids just hanging out on bikes in my neighborhood when I moved here uh, a year ago, I was shocked because you just don't see that anymore. There, It's video games, social media. So I think that is the evolution of where we are as a, uh, as a country and that we connect more virtually. We are getting older, but there is also sanitization that is happening in communities where the names are being changed, different types of people are moving in, and it's meant to be hit now. 
And in that process, a lot of the culture and the fabric that make up that community, it's changing, right? So I think that's definitely at place. But you mentioned this microcosm of you living in this space, despite the fact of having been bused somewhere else from school, you know, your world view in some ways was limited. Now you ended up at UCLA. So was, was that the driver in that this is the community that you knew I'm going to school nearby? Or did you have consideration for going to school somewhere else as well? That's a great question. So the way in which, uh, so I was in a lot of programs. Some of those programs were your young black scholars type programs or early academic outreach programs, basically the minority outreach programs for high potential students in you know the urban area. And so I did a lot of tours. I mean, I went to UCLA for like a week long program or something like that. But it wasn't until the 10th grade when I just so happened to be walking. And I, by the way, the school I should mention that I went to was from 6th to 12th grade. I was bus to school from 6th grade to 10th grade. And then I got my car in 11th grade. By the way, I went there the full, you know, 6th to 12th grade. And it wasn't until like maybe the 10th grade when I was walking past one of my counselors at the time. And he was like, well, Corey, well, what schools are you going to be looking at? You haven't think about college now. And I was like, oh, I don't know, UCLA or Stanford. And he was like, you got to get into some AP classes. And I was like, what are AP classes? So 11th grade is when I began to take all the advanced placement courses. And then in 12th grade, I think I had taken like five or six at one time or something like that. But either way, I had aspirations to go to one of these big name schools because I heard the name, but not because I knew anything about the school. In fact, I always wanted to be, well, I always wanted to be, I think, in early years, maybe elementary, a scientist. And then I saw that movie Freaky Friday, and I wanted to be Jamie Lee Curtis. I wanted to be the therapist. And um, I was going to go to school at Tulane, which is in New Orleans, but then Hurricane Katrina happened. Mm. That family, a lot of family deep in the South, most of my family still in the, is in the South, um, Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi. Um, and then I have some folks also in Michigan, but I was going to go to the South for school. And so I went ahead and I applied to the schools that gave me fee waivers. I did not believe that I had to apply, you know, pay for anything. Um, and they were pulling me out of class all the time and talk to this person scholarship here and this person there. So my, they were very much proactively pursuing me. And I went to uh, Atlanta because I had gotten into Emory. And I was like, I went with my mom and my dad and my sister. And me and my mom were the ones who took a tour of Emory. But it was a very short tour. And I'll tell you why. This is how I, I chose college. I went on a tour and, you know, we're just like walking around. And I'm like, hey, talk to the tour guide. What division school is Emory? You know, he's like, what do you mean division? I said, are you guys D1, D2, D3? Now, mind you, here's the backstory. I know nothing about sports whatsoever, and I can care less. So this is how I was trying to sort of correlate or project what type of experience I might have. And he was like, oh, I think we're like D3. And so I tell my mom, I said, oh, yeah, mom, we can lead this tour. They're not D1. The parties, the parties are not going to be cracking. That's literally how I made the decision to go to New Zealand. So the, like the hilarious part of this is like, you were not an athlete and you were Didn't this matter. great academic. Now, I, I, I remember in your intro, you said you were a party boy as well, which we could talk about. But did your parents have an opinion on that or were they just like, OK, then? They were like, whatever. My, my, they were excited that I got into UCLA because it was like this big deal. The, the, the year that I got in, only 96 black students had gotten into UCLA, which is like, a, a, you know, it was the lowest in maybe 40 years or something like that. It was a big national scandal around it. 
And so there was this letter and like my mom had the church read it and everybody was like clapping for me. And then my grandfather, um, he was like, you know, well, you got into school at UCLA and that's down the street and that's where you're going to go. That's a good school and you're close by. So it was him. And then the fact that I associated D1 with big parties, that's how I made the decision. Knew nothing about majors. And I said, I want to be the Jamie Lee Curtis from Freaky Friday. So I chose psychology and then got to UCLA and realized it was basically a cover up for neuroscience and all things cognitive and did not have the counseling piece of it whatsoever. But because I was doing fairly decent in the classes, no one was like, hey, Corey, you should really take ownership of your major and change it if you don't like it. I just kind of follow what they told me to do. My family would tell you to today, we all went to college together through me. We were just like, whatever they say, just do it. Mm-hmm. And shout out to your parents because we have a ton of people on this show, obviously. And we, we, we know the story that a lot of us have of single parent home or mom being really involved in the process or dad being really involved in the process or parents effectively co-parenting and all of that. But it's not often that we hear a story where an entire family goes on a college visit, if a college visit even happens at all. And I'm a firm believer that while many of us may have had difficult upbringing due to the relationship or lack thereof between our parents, there are many of us who also have present fathers who are actively engaged. So I think it's important to highlight that as well. And it just speaks to what we talk about on the show, that we are not a monolith. Monolith. That's right. That's right. And you know what? I, my parents are, are literally some of my best friends. Um, my wife is not my best best friend, but before it was my parents. Um, we're very close. My parents had me at 21 and they got married and they stayed married. And I think that there's so much that I learned from them just around how to navigate in the world and how to talk to me. My dad's a carpenter and I had nothing like he would drill me and be like, this is how things work and pick up the hammer there. And he was very hard on me. He would tell you to this day that I was really hard on me on the physical stuff because he wanted me to go push, be pushed more so into school. And then my mom was just, I, I have a lot of my go-getter personality from her. She was just beating down doors, trying to make sure whatever the opportunity that said it was the best, she was like, and it's free. That's where he's going to go. Uh, so that's where she was. That, I don't even know how I got into the magnet school to get into because you're technically supposed to have points as a feeder school, but she caught them and went up there with donuts or something and met somebody who met somebody else and they were praying together. And that's how I got in. And because I got in, my sister got in because it was one of those schools where they, you know, they obviously carried the siblings too. So, uh, <laughs> they should. Listen, nobody can okay. find access to academic <laughs> opportunities and extracurricular opportunities like a driven black mama, especially if she's in the church. I, I can attest to that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so I was in all the programs. I was in the summer program, sports program. I even like sports. You go in a sports program. You do in the Saturday program. I, you know, I wasn't allowed to sleep in as a kid. That was not one of those things that my parents did. You know, if I got up to school on the bus, got up at 5 a.m. I mean, I still wake up pretty early to this day because of that. They might let me sleep in until 7, but that was about it. You know, very hardworking, very much like you got to be doing something uh, because we're not paying or allowing folks to just sit around and do nothing. And they didn't even really care for me to have a job like in high school because they were just like, your school's your job. So do school, mm-hmm. you know, and so, everything else is gravy. So I, it was, it was, it was good, but it's funny because all that still culminates to that way I made that decision. And you should have saw should, the scholarship uh, meeting that we went to. So very nerdy. I'm going to nerd out for a second. 
the I went to calculus camp because in high school you do a calculus camp. This school was really good. The school I went to was really, really good. And they would take off. Um, you'll have maybe two weeks off or something like that, like finals week in college to study for AP. And one of the AP exams was calculus. And so they would take you on a camp for like a weekend. My mom got a call. Maybe I got a call. I don't know. Somebody got a call about a scholarship opportunity at UCLA and they were having interviews that weekend. We were all the way up in the mountains somewhere. My parents came, drove, picked me up from calculus camp, took me down for the interview and drove me back up to calculus camp. Um, and then, so when I got the scholarship, thank God, um, we had this, you know, they had the whole culminating orientation or whatever. And they were like, bring everybody. I was like, you sure you want to bring everybody? So we brought my family to it. Sister, my cousin got to a fight up there. It was just a lot going on, but we were there. And the whole family, like I said, went to college together. <laughs> so first I was like dying at math camp and then I'm also dying at your cousin getting into a fight because that's like the blackest story I've heard in a long time but it, it, speaks, it speaks to that dichotomy of navigating all these different worlds for sure so I get it mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so thinking about your time at UCLA you get in there you realize that your degree program is more neuroscience based you're also having this awakening as a black man in terms of how you view race, structural inequality, et cetera. How did those things affect or change your view on what you wanted out of your career, or did it? You know, if I had went to Emory or to any of the other schools, but I'm thinking Emory, I probably would be in corporate America. I probably would not necessarily feel as heartfelt, I should say. I wouldn't have as much of a heart feeling um, and a passion or commitment to this idea of justice or equity or, you know, freedom, I think we were calling at the time. I got to UCLA and my freshman year, because it's only 96 Black people, it was like the whole community descended upon us. It was the current students, it was the alumni, it was the faculty, it was, you know, other all the organizations. They were like, oh, these Black kids, who came in and it's only 96 of them, let's put them to work and let's make them do everything. So I got to UCLA um, summer because you do the summer, uh, freshman summer program, which is like a bridge program. And I'm 17. And, um, you know, I-, I spent the first few months on my Bluetooth. At the time, you have Bluetooth. Talking to my one of my friends, um, my best friend who went to school at Tuskegee and about how I thought all these people were pretty lame, to be honest. I was like, uh these kids here, they're like, oh, I want to go to my first party. And I was like, first party? And then somebody got drunk and passed out. And there was an ambulance call. And I was like, they're amateurs. You know, I do not see how people just be like, oh, you feel like, I'm like where are the big parties? Like, where's the, like, what, what are we doing here? And so anyway, uh, some of the, the, the older men took a real interest in me. And they sat me down and told me about Africa being carved up. Gave me all this language about, you know, colonialism and imperialism and oppression and all these words. And because, you know, I like to read. Reading is my ultimate favorite thing to do. All the like I can read, you know, incessantly. But I'm like picking it all up, and I'm literally, oh my gosh, I love this. And then I started pointing to my own experience, but narrating it with different language. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm oppressed. I was systematically disenfranchised. All this stuff was happening. I see this. I see this. And then there was an outreach program that they wanted me to be a part of. And then I actually had to go and do tutoring and counseling in the same 
schools that were, have been my neighborhood schools. Mm. And so I began to see things like they didn't have books. There was no expectation of homework. There were no college anything on the walls. The ceilings were really high and the windows were barred. And I took my SAT at these schools. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't know all of this other stuff. And so my mind got blown. At the same time that I was this nascent baby activist in development, I pledged a fraternity. Mm-hmm. And I knew nothing, even though I was on the boy step team and all that other stuff. I didn't know about fraternities and sororities. I didn't know anything about it. All I knew was um, that Martin Luther King was an alpha. And so when I called my grandma, she was like, well, Martin Luther King did it. You should do it. That's the best. Ah. This is all before President Obama. That's the best. Like to this day, look. Oh, I see. You. Yeah. So uh, I went ahead and pledged because of that. And they were like, yeah, you wanted to be an alpha. And I was like, no, I didn't. I just wanted to be like Martin Luther King. I didn't know it was going to be, you know, all of this other stuff. So anyway, uh, dualities once again, because the African Student Union and the Black Greek Letter organizations did not really get along. Two different approaches, two fundamentally different philosophical views on how we move forward as a people. The Black Greek Letter organizations are very much at its root about the talent of tent. The African Student Union, at it, very much at its core, is about organizing the masses. And mm-hmm. so you have one that is more around organizing and one that's more around advocacy. But how do you hold both? And then as I am, you know, I'm at a research institution, I realize that the that the, the best way to, to, to establish capital and influence at a research institution is to do research yourself. And so I did research every year that I was there. And so that really much put me through the academic route. But the original plan was that I was going to get a PhD in urban education. And I graduated and I started a, a PhD in urban education program at UCLA. And I really wanted to go to Temple uh, in Philadelphia on the East Coast. And I did not go because one, my girlfriend was here. And then two, um, at the time, UCLA had the most sort of academic track record around urban education issues. And so it was just the best institution to go to for this area. And that whole adult holistic thing caught up with me. Like, ah, I've been here my whole life, undergrad here, this again, I don't want to be here. So I quit and I left. Went to New York. And I was supposed to go to New York to start at Columbia because one of my uh, advisors was actually leaving, got recruited to go to Columbia. He was like, I'm just going to tell him to bring a PhD student with me. Like, okay, great, let's do it. And got to New York at 22 and was like, yeah, I'm not coming. Nope. I want to have fun. And that's what I did. So my career track was very, you know, nonlinear. I started, I was working in a foundation junior and senior year of college. And so that was like my real job. And it was not a campus job. It was a real job. And then I left that job. And then I worked in the think tanks in New York. And then I was going to go to business school because I wanted to create an organization that would work on workforce, economic justice, economic development, affordable housing, everything. And then I went to a conference at Harvard and somebody older there was like, Corey, based on your interests, you should really think about public policy school. And I was mm-hmm. like, what is public policy school? Because you and have a master's from UCLA as well, right? I do, in urban education. Okay, so did you had that at this point? 
I did. And right. the, the way I got that was uh, basically my activism. I, I learned, and I still believe this, and I think I really got this from my mom. I just articulated it. Don't accept no for anybody who can tell you yes. And so at the graduate level, faculty can do whatever they want. That's why there's an academic senate. They can literally do whatever they want. So I petitioned and was like, yeah, I'm leaving, but I want a master's. Because I did research with you all, the same department, all undergrad. And I feel that I've amassed enough skill set and knowledge and have done enough knowledge creation for a master's. They were like, okay, well, let's sit you down for the comp exam, I think is what it's called. And you have basically at the time, you got to write up the whole thing. And they awarded me a master's. And I took that as I was supposed to go to Columbia, but I didn't go. So yeah, I got the master's. So you literally petitioned, sat for an exam, and obtained your master's that way. Yeah, because I did I did one full year of graduate school at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So now jumping to, you're now learning or hearing about public policy, right? Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And what was that like for you? Did, did a light bulb immediately go off? Yes, because I was in New York at the time. And New York has a really cool way of telling you, communicating what his public policy objectives are. Enroll in school, you know, um, free parenting classes, come back and get your degree, you know, start a business. It's literally on the subway. Every time you get on the subway, there's a new policy campaign. And I went ahead and learned about policy school. And of course, when I learned, it was like a month before applications were due. So hit up all the professors again. And I was like, actually, I'm going to go to policy school. Can I get letters for that? And literally submitted all my, my uh, applications, probably the day that they were due. And the school that awarded the most money um, was Cal Berkeley. So I went on a fellowship there. And that's how I came back to California. And that was kind of heartbreaking because I did expect to maybe stay in New York for a bit and really dive deeper there. But God, you know, he knew that if I were going to ultimately be in California, it's probably best that I attend and cultivate the networks that are in California because networks are not necessarily, you know, across, they're not necessarily national. They're very locally based, even at, you know, the most prestigious schools, like the bulk of your base is going to be in a particular locale. So that's why I ended up at Berkeley um, for public policy, which I just sort of jumped into. It was basically a lot of stats, and math and quantitative stuff and um, economics. And I was like, oh, let me just dive in and learn about that. And so that's where, where I cut my teeth. And I think it's important to highlight your time in New York and saying, you know what, Columbia ain't it. Because people look at people like you who have this story of like, I went to a magnet school. I was president of everything. I, I did AP classes. I did these summer programs. I went to math camp. I went to UCLA. You know, they hear these things and they think that the career chapter of your life was equally as seamless. And I think your story is a lot more common in that you do everything you're supposed to do in academia and then you get these degrees and you come out and you think the career trajectory is going to be equally as seamless. And what you find is that you get into a professional degree program or something like that, or a PhD program. It's like, this is not what I thought it was, or I'm not as passionate about, about it as I thought it was, I was going to be, or I don't like the PhD program where I am. There are all these other factors that happen that can lead you to, for the first time in life, not be on a linear path. And I think for those of us who are 
champions in our community and people that are held up as the example and the model, the prototype of how to do everything right, it weighs on us when things are not going in a direct line the way we're used to. Because we're like, well, what are people going to think? Now I don't know what I'm doing next. I was at this job, now I'm here, and and now I'm over there. And that is actually just real life. Even for those of us who are very driven and who've been given the tools to succeed and to thrive. But did did that weigh on you psychologically while you were in the process and trying to figure it out? Yes. Not necessarily what are people going to think. More so, Am I doing what I want to be doing? Mm -hmm. I had a hard time. I think getting married, having children really matured me in a way that I did not know what's going to happen. I mean, to the consequence, I guess. To stay put. I mean, I used to change jobs like underwear, honestly. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm out. Nope, I'm going somewhere. And so I literally would look at my commitment to a job based on how long I would go there without putting out any feelers because mm. I can always be making more money and I can always be doing something different. So I was always on a job and interviewing somewhere else. And it was because I think I was just searching for something to hold all of these dualities, all of these intersectionalities. And it just never, it, it doesn't exist. So I think of life now in terms of chapters and where, and, and God putting me on assignment. So my assignment is to be here for this amount of time and to leave behind what to then go into what. And I am happy to say that it all connects. Um, at the end of the day, it will connect. But when you're in it, that peace of mind is something that you have to consistently pray for and ask for and sow into because a job is a job. You know, there's people, there's dynamics, there's politics, there's situations, and you still have to navigate all those things. And so I think New York really helped me with that because I was coming from a place like LA, which is very much, hi, how are you? Good to see you. But, you know, in New York, like, don't talk. You know, and that's a very, it's a dichotomy. It's completely different, opposite sides of the spectrum. But once again, vacillating and knowing how to go between the two of them uh, would help me professionally. And I think that when I got to uh, New York, you know, I had my job, I was working in Think Tank. And then I was like, oh, I want to be a party promoter. Oh, no, I want to actually write magazines. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, well, let me go and do some consulting over here and just do curriculum for this boys group. Let me go and do that, you know. And so once again, I was feeding all of those different parts of my identity and trying to figure out which of those could be monetized and which of those could be monetized in a way that's not going to make me long for the ability to manifest that other part of my identity. But a job just does not, there's no multifaceted job that can do that. And it just dawned on me, um, once again, in preparing for this conversation, that the thing that I enjoy most is leadership. Mm-hmm. And leadership can be done in any capacity, anywhere. And that is the most salient, consistent thing across all of my different jobs or posts, um, is that I enjoy being able to do a group, do a project, and bring something to life. And the process of that and ensuring that those who are working with me, under me, above me, whatever, also have a great experience. I'm a big we person. I'm a frat boy at heart, even before I was a frat boy. I'm such a we type of kind of person, never a me or an I, but a we. Um, and that is what I've learned to look for in every assignment. What is the expectation? What is the, what is the success look like? Where are we trying to go? Do I have autonomy to get us there? So coming out of this public policy program, 
Did you have more clarity, though, at that point on what the, the next career phase should be? So once again, Corey Matthews being Corey Matthews, um, in, pop, in policy school, I made the commitment, leaving New York, I'm starting afresh in the Bay Area now, I'm going to hunker down and do graduate school. That's it. Within the first few months, now I'm a graduate student researcher. You know, I was teaching a class. Now I'm consulting with the city of Oakland. And now I'm also the class president. And all these things, once again, just kind of piling back up. And I'm like, okay, Corey, you're, you know, 25, 26 years old now. Some things you're going to have to begin to accept as just you. And so I never got the chance to really just tunnel vision focus on what I want to do um, or what I thought I wanted to do, because I guess I was already doing it. But I'm like, do I want to work in Sacramento with the governor's office? Do I want to work in D.C.? Do I want to work in L.A.? But then you're an adult. So that holistic life thing comes back. And I was like, I need to be in L.A. and go back and reconcile the girlfriend that I left behind. Mm. And that's how I got to L.A. And I was doing consulting for another group that was a startup out of the Starbucks Corporation, um, a subsidiary. And that group um, actually was headed by my fraternity brother, the guy who pledged me, my dean. Um, and he was like, Corey, come on board and help me build this. And that's how I got my job right after public policy school. And I was working in workforce development and in economic development. And I was in multiple markets and I was traveling every week and all of these big things. And then that holistic thing came again. We were going to get married. We're going to start a family. All right. Now I can't be on the road. I can't be jet setting. You know, I can't be in all these different cities. I got to be home. And so that led me to the organization that I'm in now, which is literally as homegrown as you can get because it is a permanent institution in South LA, which is where I'm from, focused on public policy issues surrounding South LA. Um, so there is where I've been able to really um, see my holistic life in action. Like, what does it mean to be an executive? What does it mean to be a dad, a husband? Um, you know, what does it mean to be this community man, family man, all these different things. But here, with deep, deep roots and without this um, impending feeling of getting ready to bolt in any moment. Because for my whole life, I've, been ready to, I've always been thinking about bolting. What is the next thing? But now, it's a different kind of bolt. It's scarier. My children, as they grow up, they, they present different chapters all the time. Every six months, you go through a whole other sleep cycle, development cycle, milestone, et cetera. And so now funneling that bolting energy into running with them as they grow um, has been how I've been able to make peace with all the transitions. So it's interesting to hear about you talk, hear you talk about the tracks, right, both personally and professionally, and how there's some similarity there and how you're approaching both. But it's not often that you hear men be able to make the switch in the age bracket that you did, that often comes much later for men who like always have their running shoes on and like, I'm non-committal. I can't do this. I don't want to be tied down. So what was the driver for you to really seek permanency, both in terms of marriage and family and professionally so early? I ran hard. Mm -hmm. I ran hard when I was young. I, I mean, I hit it, you know, I, I've done a lot of things that a lot of people have had a lot of transformational experiences, once-in-a-lifetime experiences, whether it's backpacking through Europe for a month or 
um, you know, have, being invited to the New York City Mayor's Mansion or, you know, going to the Rockefeller home or being in all these, you know, meeting all these wealthy these people or taking a picture with President Obama, like whatever it might have been, I got to a point where I was no longer chasing a thrill. And I was mm-hmm. chasing the depth of substance that only comes when you realize that thrill seeking is temporal mm. and very unfulfilling. And so that maturity caught up. And it's still hard because I'm still trying to navigate all of the different thought of my wedding. How you bring all of these different worlds together and realize that you're now slimming down your world and realizing that you made such an impact and so many people have impacted you in these various different cities and spaces that you've been in and becoming okay with the loss that comes with the change, as well as the grieving process that comes with that realizing that loss. Like, oh gosh, man, I remember sometimes a picture, you know, iPhones and these memories that pop up. Oh man, we had so much fun. And that's what it is. And that's what it was. We had so much fun. I'm no longer looking for that kind of fun. Now I'm focused on a different type of fun and that's okay. But I'm glad you brought up the grieving piece because people are often unwilling to have honest conversations about that part of it. Like you can thrive and you can make strides in a lot of different areas. It doesn't mean it's all going to happen at the same time, particularly once you not only get married, but have a young family. There are a lot of things that get put on hold. And I think people feel judgment when they speak to feelings about it that aren't so great, right? Like I love my wife or I love my husband. I love my kids. But there is a longing that I have for that other part of my life that I've, I've left behind. And it doesn't mean that I want to go back to it or that I'm looking to have an escape. But it's just something that was a great time and it was a lot of fun. And I do grieve that. And I think that's human. I think that's OK. But it, I, I, what I And what I commend you for, though, is being able to understand that I can grieve it and still be fully present in this moment and understand that there's something to invest in here in this chapter of my life, which you mentioned kids evolving every six months. At some point, those kids are going to be self-sufficient and they're going to have their own lives and they're going to be run into 42 activities like you were. And your life as a husband and as a, a professional will evolve then as well. And I think that's something that's important to highlight for those of us who are really high achieving Black folks, particularly who have felt like it's an either or. Like, if I want to be the best that I can be professionally as a single entity, then I can't necessarily have the family also. You know what? And, and I recognize that we're almost at time, but I have two things that I'm going to share to that point. The first is I had always had this feeling of, is it a language thing that I'm missing? Or where is my niche? Where is my thing? I've had so many things. This whole they always give you give you heat, jack of all trades, master of none. Well, what if you're only a jack of all trades? What mm-hmm. if you can't commit to one thing to master it or don't want to or feel like if I choose this and I can't do all these other things? You know, my wife is an educator. My dad is a carpenter. Like it's, it's very clear. Friends, doctor, lawyer, like very clear who they are in their career and how they think of things, their perspective. And then you got me. Depends on which year, you know, we're talking who Corey Matthews is. And it makes me pull from a lot of different perspectives. I'm trained in various different disciplines. And I just sort of think in, in you know, a, a multifaceted nature. And it makes it hard 
so going back to that New York piece where I was always trying to jump, even, uh, you know, not as recently, but even when I got back to California, always trying to figure out where do I fit? Okay, is it this one? Is this one? Let me put my resume out. Maybe it's this job. Oh, this job really speaks to me right now, but then those feelings sweet, and then this other job may. And realizing that, you know, leadership, once I, once I said before, is sort of the consistent thing, but that also life is meant to be lived in the moment and on assignment, and that this is the faith boiling out over all this whole thing. If God intends for you to be somewhere, you're going to be there for as long as he wants you to be there until he moves you. And that has to be the thing that gives you joy. That has to be the thing that gives you peace. Um, there is this grieving peace around, oh man, if I don't have family and kids, I can go and I'll go and work, you know, in, in Europe or in South America somewhere. Or maybe I go to the Caribbean. You got all these people during COVID taking all these trips or whatever. I would love to do, you know, I would do that too. But I just go back to something familiar. Went to the club last year, right before COVID, right? Went to the club. That's my element. And I could hear the music and I literally I would just jump back, conditioning. I would just jump back into what it was. And I'm there the whole time texting my wife. And I'm like, oh, these people, smoke is all in my face and my nostrils. Oh, this person is so drunk. They just passed out and fell out at the bar. Oh my gosh, this music is so loud. What's the baby doing? You know, what's, you know, what's happening here? I can't wait to get back. My friend is having so much fun. So I'm going to just wait until he's kind of like drunk. I'm taking him home and then I'm going to come back home type of thing. And I just realized, like, I can't hang. I had a drink um, and I drink very sparingly now. I had a drink maybe around Christmas time and I felt it for two days. And ah. I was just like, that shit is still. That chapter yeah. has closed. So what are we looking at next? And making that kind of peace um, feels like at first it's a muscle that you have to exercise. Um, but then once you exercise it enough, there is a certain enduring peace that comes with it. And a real anticipation of what's to come next, because life is going to always keep moving. Now, whether or not you move with it, that's when you decide if you're going with the current or you're going against the current. So I decided to just release and go with the current. That other stuff is past. So I'm looking forward to what's coming up next. And that gives me peace and it makes me happy. That's good. That, that's, that's a word right there for a, a lot of people. Um, and talking about your professional journey and the work that you do now, Community Coalition, I know that you're very passionate about solving our most pressing, urgent issues. Um, and that can be multi-layered, particularly for our communities. And, and one of the things that jumped out at me and, and reading my notes and preparing for this interview is this idea of really solving poverty. And we all know that the issue of poverty within our communities is nuanced. And there are many contributing factors that lead to that. And, and while folks try to oversimplify it, particularly folks that don't look like us with the whole just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do X, Y, and Z, we know that there are many things uh, that have brought us uh, as a community to this point. Do you think it's a problem that we'll see solved in our lifetime? Well, they're calling President Biden money bag Joe right now, which I think is cool and hip and poppy. I say that it's up to us. Mm -hmm. I think that for a long time, I thought education, we just got more education. So I went to the education route. Then I did a stint in criminal justice. Man, so many of our Black men are locked up. We got to do something about that. 
Then I went into workforce. Then I realized if only these jobs would pay more, people would be more, you know, um, aligned to go into the workforce. Then I'm, I landed on income, uh, you know, on, on economic uh, inequality and income disparities. And I'm like, oh man, we got to find a way to fix that. And I realized that the way that we can begin to solve some of our most pressing issues is to bound closer together, mm-hmm. to pool assets. But in order to pool assets, you got to rebuild trust because how you use your money is really an extension of your internal psyche. And if your psyche does not align with this other person that you see, even though we're not a monolith, but that we do have some shared interest in a white supremacist capitalistic world, um, we won't be able to. We're going to always take a few steps forward and then the machine will push us all the way back. So we have to figure out the best way for us to pour into each other when every sense of the word, we got to fix our mental health, we got to fix our families, we got to take care of, you know, our, our households, we got to nurture young talent, we can't beat up our young children and tell them they got to be one thing. If they want to be an entrepreneur, why are we not putting money into their business? And then you know, using that. And I get, there's a lot of, you know, uh, avant-garde, I'd say, folks that talk about this. And I, and I, that's one thing. Always, sometimes the liberal, liberation, progressive stuff always looks so, I'm going to be crass here. You know, when people tell you like you're, they're vegan, it always mm-hmm. comes with like a whole aura to it. Why does Black liberation have to come with an aura to it? Why can't it be mainstream enough and regular enough mm-hmm. as other people's advancement and liberation? You know, and so I think we gotta we gotta remessage that. We gotta communicate that differently, and we just gotta be in the practice of doing. You know, we could own our own schools if we wanted to. There is enough wealth around, um, but it's not until everybody is mutually aligned and knowing that their own interests are considered by our collective interests that we're gonna get there. And I think that we can take steps. I think this is a generation that will take steps towards it. Um, and then our job as the older folks who will soon become elders in about twenty years or so is to do everything we can to nurture that, everything Mm -hmm. we can, you know, without holding back. And so I think that we can get there. I think that we also have to do stuff on the policy front. There is no more, you know, a lot of the work that my wife and I do on the side is really around how do you help coach Black people to navigate unconscious bias, everything from salary negotiations to dealing with tough situations at work to conflict resolution to just being Black in a workplace, being Black in any place, any space. We need to trickle that down to our education system. Why is it assaulting Black minds as opposed to nurturing Black minds? And so I think that we have to not let anybody fly as we try and figure out what our collective, you know, architecture or infrastructure towards advancement is going to look like. Nobody, you know, can, can, should be able to come against that and get away with it. And once we have those two pieces in place, I think we'll be solid. And I think given the events, of the last year even has caused an awakening within the Black community that we may not have seen before. And there's more of a focus on how we spend our Black dollar uh, and not only spending them with each other, but also looking at companies that may be white-led, but what is their commitment to diversity and the economic development of the Black community as well or underserved areas. So I think we're on that path. I do think there is a lot of deprogramming that has to happen with regard to uh, internalized white supremacy and the way we view collective economics and the things that we're trying to advance there. Absolutely. Lots of work to be done uh, in terms of unlearning. But I like what you said around making Black liberation more mainstream, because there is this view that if 
if you're in that space and you hold certain opinions uh, in that arena, that there's a certain look that you have, there's just things you don't subscribe to. And it, it is seen it is seen as something that's more on the outskirts or the periphery of Black culture, as opposed to something that we all can adapt and adjust to what our own personal temperament, personality, and appetite are. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not something that you, you hear that's spoken about, but it's true in that like nobody wants to be seen as too too woke or too much of an activist because you're on the fringe of society in that sense. And you're, you're, you're opening yourself up and you're welcoming a backlash that is going to prevent you from thriving economically or otherwise as well, or being seen as a fraud. That's the other thing. If you're in it too far, people are, are, are waiting in the wings to call you out uh, for one reason or another. White supremacy at its, at its core, divide and conquer. It's an old tactic. And I'm happy that you caught it because that's exactly what I was saying. And, you know, the other piece of it, too, is if you have capital, social capital, mm-hmm. you spend it, you give it, you broker it. Me knowing that I've gone through and this whole thing comes full circle, so many different spaces, you know, the constant movement back and forth. Whatever I pick up, I'm giving back. I'm giving out. Mm-hmm. You know, I want folks to know about it. You know, they're doing this over here. OK, this is how you're going to do it. And I think that really was the spirit of, of our of our coaching business was just that. It's like, look, I learned a lot of things that I bumped my head along the way. I have a lot of people that I've connected to. If it's network, if it's opportunity, if I got a job opportunity that I can give you, I'm going to give you that. We got to all be like that. That's how everybody else mm-hmm. is. And it's really not anything hard. We, crim- we criminalize it ourselves because we've been made to feel bad for doing what everybody else does. But that is how it should be done. Because how else are we supposed to collectively decide how we move forward and actually put in the pieces to get there? So if you've got some capital, spend it on yours. Absolutely. And this reminds me of something I was reading last night about Cardi B, of all people. Um, but, you know, there were, there were all these news articles about the weekend now boycotting the Grammys because he wasn't nominated and all this chatter about a lot of mainstream Black artists being snubbed this year. And Cardi B had done this long post celebrating the number of Black indie artists who are nominated. And essentially her messaging was, you know, as mainstream artists, we're going to be okay. But can we take this moment to highlight those now who are on the precipice of recognition by the Academy? And she didn't use those words, but that's essentially what she was saying. And, you know, Cardi, for all her outrageousness, gets a bad rap. But I'm like, this is an astute observation, right? And it speaks to the collectivity piece that you alluded to in that it doesn't always have to be those one or two mainstream people that we all know who are getting to eat off something. There's this whole sub-community as well of people who are equally as talented, if not more, but don't have the resources. So how do you leverage your social capital or your actual capital to advance for all of us. And I think what she did yesterday or the day before, whenever it was, is a perfect example of that. How do you turn the conversation in a way where we don't look divided, but we actually look like, you know what, we're going to celebrate those who are lesser known right now because it's still a win for all of us. Exactly it. And she is an astute observer. She's mm-hmm. relatable and she gets it. She says things in her own words, but what she's saying is not really wrong. Right. Absolutely. So shifting gears, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. You know, I would say most recently, um, there's this vaccine 
shortage that we are continuing with here in California. And we've had a lot of scandal around people vaccine chasing, going into counties that are not theirs, pushing old people out the way, taking vaccines, et cetera. And there was this opportunity to drop on our organization's lap. So I got a phone call from the governor's office on a Friday at one, and they wanted to set up a mobile vaccine clinic on that next Monday at 9 a.m. And mm. I just so happened to be off that Friday, but I had to kick it in gear. So the whole weekend I'm on the phone with the governor's office, FEMA, all these different entities trying to figure out how many vaccines, when they can start, how we do the outreach, what will be the registration process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until I went ahead and just put everybody on one email on a Sunday and was like, this is the plan forward. And I'm happy to report that um, over those two weeks, we vaccinated almost 5,000 people. Wow. Um, yeah. And all predominantly, I would say 90% are from the community and people who otherwise would not have access and equity for the vaccines. And that to me was something that was high stakes and very much in line with me being able to churn, um, you know, pretty quickly. But of course, now at great expense to the time with my family, et cetera, because I'm taking phone calls and emailing all through the night. But that was something that was extraordinary because it answers this big existential question of can the community vaccinate its own? Which mm -hmm. if you took vaccines out of it, can the community help its own can the community, support its own community? Can, can the community basically demonstrate that it can be a community in every sense of the word um, for its own? And so I think we modeled that. And I'm very proud of that because at the time that we got the call and all the people that we had to deal with and the ways that they were not willing to, bend, to be flexible and bend for us, but that they were like, well, we got the vaccine. So if y'all want them, y'all better figure out how to get them. And we mm. figured out how to get them. That's amazing. So, you know, you mentioned the importance of God's timing and seasons and, and staying put. And all of, of which I ascribe to as well. But in a perfect world, how do you see your life advancing in the next five years if it were up to you? Next five years? Hmm. I think that I would probably either be running an organization in five years or I would be doing coaching full-time or I will maybe uh, foray back into academia mm -hmm. and say that now that I have been in the real world and could apply some practical concepts to what is otherwise theory to develop my own form of praxis and marrying with theory and practice, I might take a gander back into academia in five years. But most importantly in five years, um, I'd be approaching 10 years of marriage and my children will be a little bit older and I will be trying to figure out the best way not to be a helicopter dad, which is totally my personality if unchecked. I'm very protective you know, of everybody and everything that is in my life. I've only spoken to you for a little bit over an hour and I feel like I already know the kind of dad you could be uh, by the time your kids get a little bit older. So, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so where can people find you online? Well, people can find me, um, you know, on Facebook, Corey Matthews, LinkedIn, Corey Matthews. And then if, if ever you need any help with resumes, cover letters, or want to just talk about how to navigate the workplace, uh, we have a business, www.coachingtransitionsllc. Dot com. That's all one word, coaching transition And, you know, looking forward to connecting. I am all about our upward mobility and all our collective progress. So talk to you.
Now, listen, I, we went we went over an hour a bit. We'll see where it is by the time we edit. But you 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 have taken the title, I believe, as the shortest alpha interview. So I'll give it to you. You know what? To be honest, I tried to keep us at an hour, but you kept asking questions. So I listen, have to be like, I, I'm not going <laughs> to. I do what I do. But here's the reason why, because those of us, you know, those who listen to our show regularly, they know what they expect. So I can be more concise. But there's just certain things we have to get to because that's the kind of show that we are. We dig into it, right? You did, yo, you dig into it. You dig into it. I felt like this was like a a, a vocal journal. Um, so mm-hmm. I appreciate a lot of questioning, and I and I'm very sorry to the listeners that I went over that hour, but I really tried my best to stay there. I did. Blame it on me. It'll shorten a bit once we, you know, we we do a little bit of editing magic. But listen, I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I don't feel like even though you're on the shorter end of the alpha spectrum that we skimped on anything. So I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. And it was a pleasure talking with you. And to our listeners, you know what to do. If you enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. You know, also we're about networking here and the collective advancement of our 26er community. So you've heard about Corey's extensive experience and how he's navigated various networks and what he's passionate about now and what his areas of expertise are. You got a question. We always encourage our listeners to reach out, ask, see if you can connect, do that. We are all we have, or we all we got, as we say. So reach out. I'm sure Corey will be happy uh, and ready, willing, and able to have a conversation, help in any way that he can. And last, but certainly not least, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.